Thank you so much, Father, for the power of the cross, for the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, that old things are passed away and that all things become new. Thank you, Father, for our Bibles that we open now and we receive instruction and guidance, doctrine for living, that we have an orientation, that we have a compass, and that your word is a lamp unto our, to our feet and a light unto our path. And thank you, Father, for this foundational book of Genesis as we continue our study there, that we will grasp these events and these individuals Learn the lessons that are there for us, recorded under the guidance and inspiration of your Holy Spirit, preserved for us today, to hold in our hands, to impact us, to grow us, to help us become conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, receiving the word now. Amen. The exact date was June 27th, 1976. Here in the United States, we were just days away from celebrating that great bicentennial event. Do you remember that in 1976? Those of you who were here. On June 27th, a group of armed terrorists from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, group of terrorists, surprised and overwhelmed the 12 crew members on an Air France jetliner. Some of you will remember this. Others of you, having seen the movie, which will come to your mind in a moment, will know what I'm speaking of. They hijacked an Air France jetliner and its 91 passengers to an unknown destination, trying to make a statement to the world They found a friend in Idi Amin, remember him, in Uganda. And finally, the world became aware that they had taken the plane to Uganda. They had landed there at the airport, and they had secured themselves in an old uh, airport tower there along the runway. For seven days, the world watched and waited and listened. 2,500 miles away in Tel Aviv... Three Israeli C-130 Hercules took off with a group of commandos on board. Israel had had enough. They had sons and daughters in captivity, and they arrived under the cover of darkness on the evening of July 3rd. As they landed, the doors were already open on the C-130s, and immediately they drove out in black limousines and SUVs seeking to pretend to be Idi Amin and his entourage returning from uh, a trip that he had been on. There was one little glitch in their plan as an airport security guard watched the vehicles disembark and come across the airport runways, realizing that Idi Amin had recently switched his limousine to a white limousine and all of the vehicles were black. He sounded an alarm that something was wrong. The Israeli commandos opened with a burst of fire, killing these men, but giving themselves away with that burst. That then kicked into gear a rescue effort that is still famous today. They've made a movie about it. 
as we know the uh, Entebbe raid, the raid on Entebbe, has been made into a popular movie. These commandos went into this tower and hallway. They shouted with a bullhorn for everyone in, in, in Israeli and in English. The, in Hebrew and in English, they hollered for the terrorists, to, or the, excuse me, the, the hijacked victims to stay down. One man stood up. In, he was gunned down. One Israeli commando was killed almost immediately by a sniper, a Ugandan sniper. Before one hour was over, they were back on their C-130s heading back to Israel with all but three uh, of the hostages. And they had completely wiped out all of the hijackers and many, many dozens of, the, of Idi Amin's men at the airport. When they arrived back in Tel Aviv the next day, July 4th, Israel's prime minister at that time, Yitzhak Rabin, remember that name? Triumphantly declared that the mission will become a legend. And it has, hasn't it? A small group of commandos in the stealth of the darkness of night releasing those that meant so much to them. I invite you to turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 14 and I want you to take with you that feeling, that sense. We've looked at this story in Genesis chapter 14 as we make our way through this fascinating book. I hope you're enjoying it. I know I am as it unfolds before us. This book of foundations. We're in the life of Abram and Lot. And last week we covered the first 16 verses of Genesis chapter 14. For our text today, I'd like us to back up to Genesis 14:8, so that we can review just briefly and remind ourselves of how Abram, in a sense, with his group of Israeli commandos, has traveled, and um, in the stealth of night, he has overwhelmed a much stronger foe, and he has released his nephew Lot, and all is well, and he is returning home to a hero's welcome. Why don't you stand with me as we read our text this morning? You've been seated for a while. Genesis chapter 14, begin with verse 8. Follow along in the Word of God as I read through the end of the chapter. And let's see what God has for us in our text today. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kitalomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Uncle Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother brother of Eschol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 men. 
born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That would be about 120 miles to the north. That's as far north in Israel as you can get without leaving the country, essentially. You've heard the phrase from Dan to Beersheba. That means from the north to the south in Israel. Verse 15, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus, another good distance. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Ketalomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. That's our text today. May the Lord bless it to our learning. You may be seated. Well, I think this is uh, an interesting passage of Scripture. As I worked on it this week, I struggled a little bit with what the Lord had in that passage for us. But I wanted to wrap up chapter 14 today. As we move through Genesis, we don't pick and choose what we, what we have next. We take it as it comes. And um, I thought that it would be interesting for us to just back up a little bit and remind ourselves of um, what's happening here with Lot and Abram and what set the stage then for this interesting meeting at the end of chapter 14 with the king of Sodom and then this mysterious Melchizedek. I've broken our passage down into four parts, all centered on people and lessons learned around those people. And so let's dig into our text and let's see what God has for us. The first thing I want us to do is I want us to learn from Lot once again and be reminded about a lesson about security. Lot learns a lesson about security. Number one, a lesson about our security. You'll recall that Lot has in progression now been turning away from Uncle Abram. He has becoming more and more self-interested. He is becoming more and more self-promoting as he has selfishly taken all of the fertile plain of Jordan. He has, in the interest of economic gain and in the interest of economic development for himself, that is, he wants to be richer, he wants to have more, he has pitched his tent towards Sodom, and then in our passage this morning we see that when these kings from the north, with the difficult names there, they are now, those are kings from present-day Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, and they have swept down And uh, because of the rebellion of these lesser city-states of Sodom and Gomorrah and these city-states that dot the landscape there, uh, they're vassal states. They've been paying taxes for 14 years, and now they've just said, that's enough. They want to see what happens, and these 
enemies have come down. And we see that Sodom and Gomorrah and the kings assembled their people. They stood, but there was evidently essentially zero resistance as almost immediately the men turned and fled. And so these armies from the north were able to come and to sweep through and to take them all captive in essence, hostage, or even to kill them or to make them slaves. And they took all of their stuff, including, verse 12, Abram's nephew Lot and all of his possessions, all of his property, all of his people. They're gone. And I thought that before we leave Lot there, and we're going to pick him up again because we're not done with him yet, but we have an interlude here at the end of 14 and all of chapter 15 where we'll be focusing on Abram. And uh, into 16 and 17. Then we'll pick Lot up again. But I thought it was interesting to just think about Lot for a minute before we move into the end of the chapter. What is it that Lot is looking to for his security? He thought he made the best decision possible. He chose the most fertile part of the plain. He thought he had life by the tail. He pitched his tents toward Sodom to begin to do business. It was even better to move into Sodom. He grew more wealthy. He grew stronger in people, in property, in possessions. And he thought he was very secure. I think there's a good lesson here for us about our security. In fact, it brought to my mind several Proverbs. The wisdom of Solomon listed for us in Proverbs. Can we take a minute and just kind of apply this point right now in our message? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 18, would you please? Proverbs chapter 18. Lot had a problem. He thought that his wealth would keep him safe. He thought that if he had enough wealth, if he had enough property, if he had enough people, he would be secure. And he found out that apart from God's blessing and hand over him, he lived in a very insecure world. I think the application is pretty clear for us today. Certainly in America lately, we've had our financial foundations shaken. The footers are cracking and a lot of people are in panic mode. They thought that their wealth would keep them safe and they're finding out that wealth has almost nothing to do with our safety in the day of disaster. Notice what it says in Proverbs chapter 18. Let's read verse 11 first. Look what it says. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. Let me make myself clear that I think we should be productive people. I think that we should be growing in productivity and wealth. But we should not be like the rich fool in Luke 12 or Lot and think to ourselves, look at what I have produced. I must build bigger barns so that I can take life easy and be at ease, watch Jeopardy. Hopefully wheel will come on after that or else the other way around. And then I can have another banana split and life is good. And God says, that's not what it's all about. God said, you are a fool because everything you do is all about you. Now who, who will get all this stuff? Some marauding, pillaging king. That's who will get it. I have such a clear picture in my mind, and I've used it before, of my dad's garage after my Aunt Wilma died. My mom took care of my great-aunt Wilma. My great-aunt Wilma had a house full of antiques and nice things and pretty pictures and, and vases and antique china. 
And after her funeral, we took all of Aunt Wilma's stuff and laid it out on planks in my dad's garage. And I can remember thinking how utterly horrified Aunt Wilma would be at how much stuff her nieces and nephews left in that garage to just be carried off. Stuff that she loved and cared for. And it was just in disarray by the time everybody had gone through, gotten their stuff. Oh, we don't want this. We want this. Whose is it now? What are you living for, Lot? What are you living for, you rich fool? So that I can be secure. That is utter an utter mirage. Look what it says in Proverbs 18, 11. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. It's nothing more than a figment of their imagination. Why do you think guys jump off buildings when the stock market crashes? Why do you think accountants and people like that fake plane wrecks and fake their suicide to get out from under? Because their wealth ended up being absolutely, utterly hollow. I don't know how much debt he died with, but all the wealth that he had amassed does nothing for Michael Jackson today. I hope somewhere along the line, God in his grace and in his mercy and in his utter kindness and his undeserving grace and mercy, somehow the gospel penetrated that man's heart. It seems unlikely, doesn't it? He looked at him and said, you fool. Lot, you fool. How did you think that assessing wealth would keep you safe? Look what he says in verse 10 now. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. Don't you love that verse? Listen, we've got to get our eyes on the right things here. It is so easy to be like Lot, isn't it? Again, I think you should pay your bills. I think you should be productive. I think, it's, I think you should be developing ideas. I think that we should, we should do it all with the motive, though, of what? Of bringing honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and furthering his kingdom, helping people, helping the church, reaching orphans in Honduras, not so that I can eat more ice cream, pick up seashells, and watch wheel. My security comes into place when? When I stand before God just. When I'm his child, the righteous run to him and they are safe. And Uncle Abram, is what, isn't he a beautiful illustration of a righteous man who has strength in this moment? Where's your security? Where's your security, Lot? I think it's interesting, and let's just glance at another proverb right across the page. Proverbs 17, 17. Look what it says. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 17, 17. There are other verses like that. For example, in chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I think that Lot made a couple of mistakes, didn't he? Lot thought that wealth would keep him safe, and Lot thought that by being with a whole lot of people, he would have many companions, and he found out that it was Uncle Abram who was his friend nearby, who was his brother in a day of disaster. And I think there's two lessons on security from, from Lot here. One is, it doesn't come from your wealth. And the other is, in the day of disaster, you had better have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Where would Lot have been without Abram? Where would he have been? How, how magnanimous of Abram to move in 
and take care of this nephew. All right, Lot, you've gotten in deep enough. I'm afraid they're going to kill you. And he comes swooping in with his commandos in the dark of night and releases him. Well, that's Lot. Number one, Lot learns about security. Number two, we encounter Abram coming back now, this head of commandos, no doubt, His name is all over the countryside. He must have some renown. It took them, they were a couple hundred miles to the north, so it had to take them several days to return. Evidently, the news of this great Entebbe-like release and raid on these uh, terrorists um, got ahead of him. And here comes the king of Sodom and the king of Salem to meet him. Everybody wants to be around Abram now. The second lesson we're going to see centers on Abram. And we find, number two, that he is a model of humility. He is a model of humility. Look what it says. Then, uh, after, verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Ketelomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Apart from that parenthetical thought that's written in there, we don't really know about this valley. It's evidently a flat piece of ground that was down from Jerusalem somewhere. The king of Sodom comes out and the king of Salem. Then Melchizedek, verse 18, the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is an interesting picture, isn't it? Let's first focus on Abram before we look at this mysterious Melchizedek. The second lesson we get out of our passage, number one, Lot learned some lessons about security. Number two, in Abram we learn, uh, we have a model of humility. Think about Abram at this moment. He's as high on his horse as he can get. He still may be spattered with blood and guts and dust from his trip. The word is out. Everyone's been released. There's huge relief. They're all safe. We got them and we took care of the enemy. What a great feeling. And now some of the area kings, including the king of Sodom, I don't know how he got there, whether he got released and got home ahead of Abram, or they've been home for a few days, or if somehow the king of Sodom fled to the wilderness, he didn't fall in the tar pit, he was one of the guys that fled to the hills, and he was not taken captive, along with Lot and all of his people, property and possessions. And so the king of Sodom meets Abram, he wants to shine up to him right away, and this king of Salem comes up to to him and he brings bread and wine. He evidently brought the bread probably represents a meal. Abram's been been in the bush, he's been on the on the on his mount, he's been fighting, he's with his warriors. He's had several days where he's just he's probably gant and he's tough right now. And what a blessing to have this king of Salem come with this meal. It could have been also, we don't know what it was exactly, but it could have been some kind of a, 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 a I'm blank, blanking out. I want to say symbolic, but that's not the right word. Um, it's probably in my notes. I'm not going to find it right now because um, I'm way off notes. But um, <laughs> it, it was some kind of a uh, uh, worship ceremony, a ceremonial. That's the word I was looking for. Excuse me, my word. A ceremonial meal 
whereby they were going to worship God. I just went all blank there for a second. All right? And so Abram comes in, and there he is, but I want you to think about this. The king of Salem speaks first here, what's recorded for us, and he immediately blesses God Most High. Here we have a king, evidently, of one of these pagan Canaanite city-states who loves God. There is no historical record of this guy. We don't have any other historical record of him in our Old Testament than this. And he worships God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. He believes in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he blesses God Most High. Look at verse 20. Who delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, Abram, if he was an American living today, you know what he would be doing? He would be doing this. He'd be saying, see them guns? Don't mess with them. Abram's back. Anybody else want to take my nephews? Come on. He'd be feeling fine and froggy, wouldn't he? And it would be all about himself. It would be all about his strength. It would be all about what he can do. And he would be just taking it all in. And notice what he does. He worships. He's humble. He's a lesson. He's a picture of humility. He's a picture of saying, if anybody's going to boast here, we're going to boast in the name of our God. He knows that he had 318 men against probably several hundred thousand people, soldiers, that in the middle of the night, God brought confusion. He was able to to rout them. And with Melchizedek taking the lead, they worship. And they bring praise to Almighty God. And then Abram offers him one-tenth of everything. What this is, you see, Abram is the conquering king, in essence. Abram has taken back all of the loot, all of the goods that they had carried off, and not only that, they have probably looted the enemy's camps. And so they have brought back loads, dromedary and camel loads and mule loads of stuff. They've brought back all of the the animals and all of the goods and their tents and clothing and and, uh, all their supply trains. They've brought it all back. And right there, Abram, the one who was given the blessing by God through whom he would be the blessing to others, he humbles himself before this mysterious king Melchizedek and he gives him one-tenth of all the loot that he had gathered. Isn't that interesting? So instead of strutting his stuff, instead of bulging his biceps, there's a lesson here for you young men too. We really live, and and we do it trash talking when we play sports and stuff, but young men, listen to me especially. We're vulnerable to taking on something out of our culture that is a really negative quality, and that is thinking that we really are strong. Yes, be your best. Yes, maximize your bench press. Yes, run the football as fast as you can. But stop dancing in the end zone. Stop stop acting like you are the man because there's always somebody who will come flatten you and make you look like an old woman. It's true. That's not a slam to old women. Now, I've got to qualify what I'm saying here. We'll move on. I got to keep going. But I have some more thoughts on that. (laughs) So he humbles his heart. He worships. He gives a one-tenth tithe. You know that Abram knew this verse. Mark this one down. You might even underline it. 
Proverbs 21.31. Proverbs 21.31. The horse is made ready for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. The horse is made ready for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. Abram drew his sword, but Abram went with an attitude that the Lord has to deliver us. Isn't that interesting? So in Lot, we learn a lesson about security. In Abram, we have a model of humility. Now let's look at this mysterious Melchizedek in the last few minutes we have here. We have a question of identity, don't we? We have a question of identity. Now this part of the sermon is just kind of interesting, all right? And um, I'm not even uh, real sure how to apply it, and I'm not sure even how much I understand it. But let me show you about Melchizedek in our Bible a little bit. There's a lot of speculation about who this guy is, because it is interesting, isn't it? And you immediately get some questions. Where did this guy come from? Where, in the middle of this pagan Canaan, did this king show up next to the king of Sodom? King of Sodom, we know, is corrupt and pagan. We've already met him. He's the one that was routed and his whole people taken captive while he fled to the hills, evidently. And then this Melchizedek comes, and he believes in God Almighty, the Creator. He believes, just like Abram believes... And Abram, who was blessed beyond measure, bows before this Melchizedek. What is that all about? Well, we never hear from him again or about him again until, oh, I don't know, is it a thousand years later? I should have done my research on that. But if you will turn with me to Psalm 112. Now somebody with a study Bible is going to be looking at what, how long it took for him to show up again. But let's go fast forward all the way to the Davidic kingdom. Let's go to King David. Remember the guy who killed Goliath? Remember the shepherd boy who wrote Psalms, played the harp, killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands? David, in Psalm 110, makes the next reference to Melchizedek in our Bible. Psalm 110, look what it says. This is a psalm by David. Now remember, he's writing poetry and he's singing a song. He's, I, th- I think what he's doing in this psalm is he's mostly praising God for what God is fulfilling in his own life. It is also a prophetic psalm in that it is about our Lord Jesus who will come and rule and reign on the throne of David from David's line. Remember, the Lord Jesus is a direct descendant of David. And so Psalm 110, begin with verse 1, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. Okay, it's poetry. It's a song. It's about God's victory in his life, about what God is going to do through his life. I doubt personally that David knew he was writing a prophetic psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, verse 4. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's about David, but it's about ultimately the conquering king, Jesus Christ, at the end of the age, too. And it says he will be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Well, what is that? That's all he says. We don't know anything. This king was also a priest in Genesis chapter 14. 
Evidently, in the Hebrew mind and in the Hebrew culture and boys and girls growing up, they know all the stories, and it's still this way, they know their Old Testament, their Bible. That's all the Bible they have. They don't accept the Messiah, King Jesus. But they know all the stories of Abraham and Moses and all of the patriarchs, and they know all about this great Antibi raid, like in the middle of the night, that Abram did, and Abram is still well known for this. And then he's known Father Abraham worshiping Melchizedek. Later on in our New Testament, and turn to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews, all right, who's he writing to? Gentiles? If it's a letter to the Hebrews, who's he writing? He's writing Jews, right? He's writing. Um, the sons and daughters of Abram. And in chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, we find out a little bit more about this Melchizedek. It's kind of interesting. And notice now that what happened in Genesis chapter 14 happened as a foreshadowing of the coming Christ. Let's just jump right into the middle of a thought in chapter 6, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He became a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's his name again. You know what the picture is here. This is the picture of the temple. And in the temple is the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. This is the part that had that big veil as thick as your wrist and no one was allowed in except the high priest once a year on behalf of the people but when our lord hung on the cross on the day of his death remember the veil was rent from top to bottom and access was given through christ alone our high priest so that in a sense we who are now lesser priests we part of the part of the reality of my faith in jesus christ and my salvation is that i am a priest I can go directly to the Father. That is the role of a priest to go to God. This is called the priesthood of believers. I don't go pray to another man. I don't go to a confessional booth. I don't go somewhere where I have to tell somebody my sins and see if they will forgive me of my sins because once for all, Christ became my high priest and he alone is my mediator for Paul said in Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I don't go through another man. And that is my position in Christ called my priesthood. And so it's accurate to say I'm a priest. So you could sign your name this week on your letterhead. <laughs> priest, Van Marceau. Priest, Ben Mann. Ben Mann, comma, priest. That's good, right? In Christ. And, and I have this access because... My priest, the Lord Jesus, opened the way for me. But notice it doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Have we heard these words already this morning? It's a direct quote from Genesis, isn't it? He met Abram returning from the defeat of kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name, Melchizedek, means... King of righteousness. Who is our king of righteousness? When we stand before God on the day that we die, I assume we enter his presence immediately. 
But as we stand before God and he says, you know, in the make-believe question, why should I let you into heaven? On what righteousness, on what goodness, on what holiness do you enter my heaven? I have one answer only. I have a king named Jesus who is my righteousness. I call him King Righteousness. He's my king of righteousness. And he gave me all the righteousness I need to come into your heaven. That's it. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. I can't do it on my own. But I have a king of righteousness. His name is Jesus. Melchizedek is probably actually just... A, it's, it's a, it means a role. It's probably a role. It probably wasn't his name. It was probably por- partly just an identifying characteristic. King of righteousness. Continue on. Then also, king of Salem means... King of peace. Salem, shalom, peace. King of Salem, king of peace. Who is my prince of peace today? It's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? My king of righteousness, my prince of peace, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. All right, what is that all about? Well, does anybody anywhere have a historical record of Melchizedek? The answer is no. He appears in Genesis 14. There's no historical record in extra-biblical literature, and there's no more information within the annals of Scripture for that. And so there we are. We have no record of his genealogy. Now, it could mean that in, in the fashion in which it's sort of a picture that we have no record of who his father and mother are, and we have no record, it's sort of like he lives forever, kind of like Jesus. He just lives forever like Melchizedek. He had no beginning and he had no end. Jesus is our Alpha and Omega, our beginning and our end. Some people think, let's back up just a minute, some people think that Melchizedek, and if you do the chronology on the timeline, some people think Melchizedek was Noah's son Shem, who was still alive. And he could very well have been alive still at this time. Probably was. There's no evidence of that. They just think that, remember, he was the one who blessed was blessed by God, and out of him, Japheth would receive a blessing, and Ham was the black sheep, and they think that it was Shem. Others think it was just a historical character that we have no record of. His records are lost, and it's used in, in Hebrew history and Jewish history as an example here, a picture. Others think he's a Christophany. I lean towards this. There's some Bible commentaries who argue that it couldn't be a Christophany. It had to be a real historical character, but it's a kind of a mood argument. The Bible clearly says that Melchizedek is that Christ comes in the order of Melchizedek. So regardless of who he really was, he is a picture in Genesis 14 of Christ who comes many years later. Let's finish this part right here real quick. Without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. They're using him as an illustration, this mysterious guy. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. In the Hebrew mind, that's incredible. You you can't get any higher than Father Abram. He's he's the top dog of the patriarchs. I mean, there's Moses, there's Joshua, and some David. But Abraham, what do they say? They don't say, I'm a son of, you know, I don't say I'm a son of, uh, you know, of Solomon or something like that so much. They say, I am a son of Abraham. We sing songs about it, right? Father Abraham, he's the high man. But even Abraham bowed down to him, look what it says, gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, 
to collect a tenth from the people. This is under Mosaic law. That is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So Abraham was the one with the promises, and yet Abraham blessed Melchizedek. And Melchizedek gave a verbal blessing to Abraham. And without doubt, verse 7, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. And I'm confused now. It gets deep, doesn't it? This mysterious Melchizedek, who is he? He might have been a Christophany. We know that whatever he was, whoever he was, he is a type or a picture, a foreshadowing of Christ who is to come, our King of righteousness, our Prince of peace, he who is greater that even Father Abraham bowed down to him. Even Father Abraham paid a tenth of his tithe to him to worship him. Well, we have in Melchizedek a question of identity, and we try to look at that a little bit. Let's quickly read it, and then we're done, and we'll go home. The king of Sodom said to Abraham then, we, we move on, and the king of Sodom and Sodom says to Abraham, Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eskal, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Remember I told you he had gotten all the loot and he had looted the camp. And here he comes on this flat spot, this plain there. He meets Sodom. He meets the king of Sodom. He meets Melchizedek. He and Melchizedek worship the Lord together. They acknowledge their creator. They acknowledge in humility that he is their God and that they are not. And he offers a tenth of this tithe to Melchizedek. And then the king of Sodom speaks up and he wants to make a deal. He's a king without a kingdom right now, isn't he? Who owns everything he has? Abram. Who was the conquering king in essence? The commando that went and released everything. He now has it all. He's got all the people and he's got all the stuff. And the king of Sodom says, why don't you give me the people back and you can have all of our stuff. He knows that soon enough he can rebuild. Ultimately, what we have here is in Abram, in the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom, we have a test of integrity for Abram, don't we? A test of integrity. Do you recall a moment in time, not too long before this, in Abram when a pagan king made him rich? He went down into Egypt. Remember the big faux pas? Remember his big bad decision? Not trusting God, taking his eyes off God, trusting himself, going into Egypt. His, his wife, he cooks up this, concocts this lie about his wife Sarai. She goes and lives in Pharaoh's harem. And finally they get out of there after God breaks them out in skin disease. And on the way out, they throw stuff at him and make him rich. This time, Abram says, I don't want a pagan king making me rich. In fact, on my way back, riding my donkey down through the desert, I decided before God that I won't take a dime from you. Oh, you can feed my men. You can feed my men. That was only right, that we get to eat from the goods. And then you can give my allies their part. Divide the booty with them. But me, I'm walking away from this. Here's your stuff. Here's your people. 
I serve the living God and I will do nothing to ever imply to anybody anywhere that you would, or set you up that you ever down the road will be ever be able to look at me and say, I'm the one who made Abram rich. What a man of integrity and godliness and spirituality at this point, right? I mean, he had a great opportunity to really multiply his wealth. It, it is likely that this was just loads of stuff. And he said, I don't want any of it. We won't develop that concept, but we do see in Abram a test of his integrity. But from earlier, we found out that he was a truly humble man at this point, And he's walking with God. And so in Lot, we learn a lesson about security. In Abraham, we have a model of humility. In Melchizedek, in this funny passage, mysterious Melchizedek, we have a question of identity. We find out that he is a type of Christ, our righteous king, our prince of peace. And in the king of Sodom, Sodom, we have a test of integrity. In closing, why don't we ask ourselves just a couple questions. Number one is, what am I counting on for my security today? What am I counting on for my security? Are you like Lot, trying to amass wealth for your security that in the day of destruction will amount to nothing? Even the moment you take your last breath, will your wealth do anything for you? It will not. Only the righteousness of Christ will keep you secure forever. I think it's interesting, number two, to ask, who do I have watching over me like Uncle Abram? Do I have any Uncle Abrams in my life? Do I have any elders in my life? Do I have a church family that I'm connected to? Or do I keep myself out of the fellowship? I like to slip in and slip out. Listen, you need to be connected You need to be connected so that in the day of disaster, there's brothers nearby, friends nearby, even if your biological brother lives far away, as Proverbs says. You need the strength of the body. Don't don't despise it in any way. Build upon it. What am I counting on for security in my life? Who do I have watching over me? And let's just end with, am I careful, like Abram, to acknowledge the work of God in my life, or do I try to steal the glory? Am I a true humble servant of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Whatever it is I excel at, whatever it is that brings me any kind of recognition, am I channeling that back to my King of Righteousness that I would boast only in the Lord? Man, we are so weak. Ask the governor of South Carolina today, if he's a strong man. Ask my brother when you get to heaven, feeling froggy your senior year in college, when you walk into the clinic and you find out you have acute lymphatic leukemia and 11 months later you're dead, and most of those 11 months you're skin and bones when you're a big strapping six foot two strong guy. We are so weak and puny, but what a privilege for God to accomplish his work and his purposes through us. Let's not strut our stuff. Let's give the glory to God. Let's see him do a great work. Let's show our children what it means to worship and to give glory to God and to live lives that 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we therefore eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. And so, Father, we would press on to higher ground and higher living like Abram, getting past some of the failures Uh, of our history and our tendencies to 
want to benefit and gain in worldly ways like Lot. Help us to live above that. Help us to have the integrity and the humility of Abram. Help us to connect to the body and be safe in the day of disaster. Thank you for the lessons learned in this historical account. Even thank you for the glimpses of truth that we seek to understand in this mysterious Melchizedek of whom our Lord Jesus is of the order of. A king of righteousness. A prince of peace. The greater one to whom we would all pay tithe. Gladly. Thank you for the righteousness of our King Jesus with which we can be robed and stand in confidence so that even if our heart stops at age 50, we know we will enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father, our Good Shepherd. Not on any merit of our own, but only because of our King of Righteousness who gave so freely out of his riches. Thank you, Father, for our Bibles. Thank you for these accounts. May your Holy Spirit continue to work in us and teach us as we have need and application as suits and fits each one of us in our journey and our walk. We give the day to you. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.